Energetic Austin here. Special thanks to our newest Patreon members. Sam Holt in Halifax, Canada. Romel in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. Ming Kor in Shanghai, China. Anthony O'Neill in Dublin, Ireland. Damn, look at all this international love. Thanks, guys. And let's keep this list going. So we got Chris in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Emily Son in Dallas, Texas. Justin Reap in Fishkill, New York. Ryan Scott in Westfield, Indiana. And Justin Stanton in Richmond, Texas. You know, you guys are the reason I do this podcast. So Energetic Austin and I, thank you for your support. And we hope you're getting a lot out of the membership. So thanks again. And now onto this episode with Mr. Ethan Wendell. You teach like entrepreneurship or something like that at school, right? Yes. From what I remember. See, I've got a good memory. Yeah. So I guess kind of as an opening question, what's the most important thing that you teach them or you think that they need to know at your university? Well, I taught at Penn State University for a couple of years. This would have been back in 2013, 2014. I mean, I would say that most people that I find that want to be entrepreneurs are looking for the idea. I find that most people think that business is something like, let's say, 80% the idea or the product or the service, or they've discovered some brand new thing and you know, maybe 20% the other stuff. And I think in general, business is the opposite. About 20% of business is the idea. And certainly most businesses, most successful businesses aren't necessarily running on a brand new idea. And even if you have an incredible idea that nobody has ever thought about, generally it's the management of the company. It's the ability to understand how to run a business and the ability to endure pain or work your butt off that really makes the difference. And so I think people spend far too much time in my class. We spend a lot of time on really the, you can have a mediocre idea, but if the plan to execute it is really good, you can create a successful business out of a lot of things. So we do a lot of focusing. My teaching really focuses on, I would say the, how do you think about the complex parts of a business and how do you break it down into small enough pieces? And then what do you need to focus on in each one of those buckets in order to move your organization when it's in its infancy forward? I think one of the other challenges that entrepreneurs run into, especially brand new entrepreneurs, is that the amount of things that you could potentially be doing any given day is so great. And it's, it's almost like a fog. It's hard to determine what it is that you need to do. Do you need to be doing marketing? Do you need to be doing finance raising? Do you need to be doing operations or working on new products or new services? You know, Where are you going to spend your time and how are you going to spend it effectively? And so we spend a lot of time just kind of distilling down. I never went to business school. And so millions of tools and teachings and programs and things that you can learn about each part of a business, I really just try to boil it down to, okay, here are two or three things that massively helped me and have helped other entrepreneurs that I know. And here's how to implement them very much more hands-on teaching than theory. When this check for $150,000 came, it was the biggest check I'd ever seen in my life. I put it in the bank and within 24 hours, I spent it all. We're like right on the cusp of being profitable, but every single time we get there, some crazy random event in the world would happen and it would beat us back down. 06 was the year that we pretty much, we would have gone out of business if not for up through these 
first four years, so 2004, five, six, seven, so four and a half years, my average pay was about $10 an hour. Yes, we could if we A, had money or B, had time and neither of which we had at this point. So so if we can go ahead and get started, if you can give us your name, age and location and then tell us about your business for a little bit and then we'll talk about that for maybe five minutes or so and then reel it back to how you got started. Yeah, so my name is Ethan Wendell. I am 38 years old and I'm from State College, Pennsylvania, originally from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I am the executive chairman, founder, and was CEO for 15 years of Diamondback Truck Covers. And Diamondback is a really fast-growing manufacturing company. We're a direct-to-consumer manufacturer, which means we make the product, we market the product, we sell the product, we ship the product, and we service the customers directly of basically metal tonneau covers. So if you're not familiar with the word tonneau cover, it's basically a cover for the back of a pickup truck. So if you imagine a, a traditional pickup truck has an open bed, if a customer wants to seal and lock what's in that bed, you need to put a cover on it. People call it a truck cover or a tonneau cover. And so we manufacture a metal version of this product that is patented. It's got some unique features to it, but its primary advantages is that it's the most durable, the most secure cover that you can get for a truck. And so our product is really priced as the premier product in our industry. And we've been producing since about 2003. We have a manufacturing plant in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, which is about 25 minutes from State College, Pennsylvania. We have about uh, 105 employees now and growing at about 30% a year annually for the last four years. And what's revenue like? Right now, this year, we're going to do about $25 million in revenue. This year is a crazy year because we lost two months of shipments due to coronavirus. Pennsylvania shut down all businesses. They carved out something they called essential businesses, but those were very, very small list of places. So our revenue this year is sort of 10 months of revenue, but we're going to do about 25 million this year. Is that and compared to last year? How much was it last year? Yeah. So last year was 18. So still even growing, even with these setbacks that everyone's going through, right? Correct. Yeah. We've had an incredible year of growth, even despite the fact that we've not been able to produce for those two months. So our projections for next year have a substantial growth next year based on the fact that we're going to now be able to produce 12 months of product. And your cover for these truck beds, I mean, the first thing that I thought about is if anyone's seen those silver toolboxes, right, in the back of a truck, this is basically what yours is, but it covers the whole top of it, right? That's correct. Yeah. So we make them out of aluminum diamond plate. Now, if you look at the product, I would say 90% of our products are black, but it's the same material as you would see in a toolbox. But we coat it on top with basically a spray on bed liner coating that coats on top of the silver diamond plate. But yes, it's essentially diamond plate aluminum that extends over the entire truck bed. And then we have various bins and boxes that actually drop down into the truck bed so that if you needed to, you know, segregate the bed and haul tools and other things, you can do so in the truck. So are a lot of your customers kind of like construction guys uh, feel like they need that to uh, put all their tools in and have all these little containers? Because like, again, it's not just one big flap. I think, you know, there's so many different ones that people can think of, like the hydraulic ones that lift a whole truck bed, I guess, higher, or, or you know, it's fiberglass or whatever, but yours has a different storage bins within them as well, right? That's correct. And we have different versions. We actually have five different versions of our standard truck cover. It opens from the front and the rear. So it's got kind of a multi, our traditional 
our standard cover opens from the front and the rear. So you've got access to what's in the front of the bed and what's in the back of the bed. There's other features, you know, for guys that really are into what they need to do with their truck. The whole concept of the cover started because my business partner, which I met him at Penn State University in 2002, and he had owned a truck, had a tree stand stolen out of the bed of his truck when he was going hunting and decided he needed a cover that was going to be very, very secure. And at the time, a lot of the other products on the market were like a vinyl tarp type material, which obviously you could just cut that open and take whatever out. And then there were fiberglass, which you mentioned. And then there were basically uh, various versions of plastics or other things, but all of them could be jimmied open pretty easily. And, and so he decided to make a metal locking one. And so a lot of the features that we build into it are features really just designed. We would say that we make covers for guys that like to use their truck. So yes, contractors buy our product, but also anybody who's really using their truck for what a truck is designed to be used for. So people that go hunting, people that go fishing, outdoor enthusiasts. We have a lot of customers that what we would, we would call the prepper community, people who are just outdoorsmen and people who need to, to have the added security of what's on the truck bed. And so these separate storage containers, they seem like they'd be like the perfect fit or size for putting children in as well. What do you think? <laughs> I suppose you could put kids in them, but it wouldn't be safe, I don't think. Probably against the law. I've got several animals, so I know they would fit in there, but again, probably same thing. But so you said 2002, you met, it was a friend and he had came up with the idea and you helped him realize, hey, I'll help you out with this. Yeah. So we were taking a class at Penn State University. I was an engineering student. He was also an engineering student. And I'd gone into school knowing that I wanted to own my own business. My father uh, had owned his own business my whole life. And so kind of had entrepreneurship all around me growing up. I kind of watched that process with him. I told him I'd wanted to get into business and he suggested that I get an engineering undergrad, which may seem interesting. I certainly at the time didn't fully understand it, although in retrospect, I think he was 100% right. But he suggested I not get a business degree. Instead, I get an engineering undergrad and then go get an MBA, was the track that I was going to be on and then, you know, search for businesses that I could work in or purchase. So I was always looking for a way to do business classes or some entrepreneurship classes. But for anybody who's ever taken an engineering undergrad at Penn State, you just don't have that many extra classes. But fortunately for me, they had launched a minor called engineering entrepreneurship, which allowed engineering students to take some business classes and get a minor in entrepreneurship. So I was taking a class with that minor. And as part of the class. It was basically a class focused on taking products, coming up with engineered products, and then bringing them to market. And so I had met my business partner now. His name was Matt Shavirchko, is Matt Shavirchko. I met him in that class and he presented a product to the class. We did this thing where in the middle of the semester, the professors had us do an evaluation on the class. It was a very unique class and it was very hard to know how to get a good grade in it because they were asking for very strange things. So middle of the semester, they asked us to critique the class in some creative way. He kind of did a critique of the class and said that the class sucked because he thought the class was going to do more to help him market products that he'd already invented. And he had already invented a lot of products. And so one of the things that he invented was this truck cover. And so many people in the class didn't quite get it. I myself had never owned a truck at the time, so it wasn't really meeting a need that I had, but it looked pretty amazing. And I thought that he was an incredibly intriguing person. And so when we got to the final project, they asked us to do a final project on a product or service. Service. So we got together. I knew I wanted to work with him. 
we decided to do the project on his cover that he had invented and called it Diamondback, which is what it's called today. And we put together a business plan and a presentation to some judges and some wildly optimistic financials and went ahead and presented it to the class. And so we ended up winning the class. So we won best product overall in the class. And then that win of that class sent us to a campus-wide, Penn State-wide design expo where we were competing against lots of other groups from the business department and from other departments. We ended up winning best product overall at that as well. And so it was really at that design expo where we were talking to lots and lots of different people and judges that I really began to see that there was a pretty substantial advantage to this product over what other products there were in the market. So we spent the spring semester of 2003 basically doing an independent study class project, again, as part of this minor at Penn State, to determine if the product was patentable, to determine if there were other competitive products out there. And it was about halfway through that spring semester that we just found ourselves working all of our time and energy on this one class. And we really kind of turned to each other and said, are we doing this for real? Or is this still just a class project? And basically about May of 2003, uh, right at about the time that, that school was ending, we determined that there was enough green light that we should keep going. And so he graduated school. So he graduated. I was a junior. And so I ended up taking the summer off with the assumption that I could return if I wanted to. Um, but by the fall, I had basically determined to drop out of school after my junior year. Oh, so you didn't even finish your work, I guess, at Penn State? No, I mean, I eventually did many, many years later because he was graduating and he was either going to go get a job for somebody else. And this is kind of one of the things that timing wise, sometimes I have to move when it's not convenient. And I knew that I couldn't do the business without him and wouldn't even wanted to try to do the business without him. He needed to know what was going on. He had just gotten married. He had just had a baby. We were going to need to get moving right away. And so we started that summer. We started trying, we re-engineered the product and tried to sell it any way we could. I mean, it it was as homemade as you could imagine. We were getting the product. It's a welded product. So it takes a lot of really expensive machinery. And we didn't have that machinery. And we didn't know anything about manufacturing. So our idea to start was we were going to get a, a local manufacturer to make the product mostly to cut, bend, and weld the metal, which were the things that we didn't have the machines to do. And then we would take the product and we would drive it back to his trailer. He lived in a, a trailer park. We had a drill press mounted to his kitchen table. We would basically drill and put all the accessories and finish these products in his trailer. We did that for the first couple, quickly determined we had to have a garage or something. So we bought a house in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, and moved over there mostly because it was so cheap. I think at the time we bought a house for $56,000 and then it came with a two-car garage. So that was everything that we needed to start working. So we did that for the first couple of months and it was okay until we got our first big, I say big sale, but I mean, it's obviously tiny, but we did a show in August of 2003. It was called Ag Progress Days. And this was like a farming show. So it was a lot of farmers and trucks and a good spot for us to be. But we did this show. It was a three-day weekend show 
and we sold six units. So, you know, each of these units is about $1,500. So we sold $9,000 worth of stuff. And as, you know, a college kid to sell $9,000 in a weekend was pretty awesome. It got us some revenue. It confirmed that the product was meeting a need. We got a lot of really incredible feedback. But the problem was when we went to make those six units with our current horrible manufacturing process, it took two months for us to make six units. And we determined that there was no possible way for us to keep manufacturing in this weird way. If we were going to grow the business, we were going to have to buy the manufacturing equipment ourselves. I think one of the other things I'll give some recommendations to, because obviously the people listening to this program are looking to become entrepreneurs, but I'd say that one of the things that made our journey incredibly hard was because I was running the business side of everything. I was doing the financials and the operations and most of the, the sales and marketing functions. And I was not a truck person. This, you know, when we started the business, that was Matt, my business partner. He was the truck guy. And this was not an industry that I had a lot of knowledge of or passion in. And I would say, first and foremost, if you can, start a business in an industry that you're passionate about. Start a business in an industry that you really want to see a difference in or see something, see a problem solved because you end up basically just with knowledge that other people don't have. So I was so dumb. I just kind of assumed that all trucks were kind of the same. They all have these beds on the back. You know, there's probably, there's six foot beds, I know, and there's eight foot beds. But other than that, they're probably mostly the same. And I was completely wrong in the sense that like no two truck beds from two manufacturers were anything close to one another. They had, we had to totally re-engineer the way that we locked to the cover, the way that we clamped to the covers, the way that we did various weather sealing, everything about the covers had to be re-engineered every time we sold one. And that really changed, you know, if you're going to do contract manufacturing, which most people that talk to us and most people that I talk to that are going to do a product business, you really don't want to be making them yourselves because the learning curve to start a manufacturer manufacturing process is so steep. And we had not really anticipated when we were moving forward with the company that we were going to be making them ourselves. We assumed we would outsource that. But the problem was, if you're going to outsource product to somebody else to make, you have to have the specs you know, dialed in. You have to have like one spec that you can order a hundred of or a thousand of or, or some large quantity. You can't just make onesie twosies and then change the design every time you sell a new product. And so we ended up basically in the fall of 2003, we decided, okay, there's enough here. We had sold, I think, 10 units the whole summer, six of them in one weekend. We decided that was good enough. We had enough product feedback from the market. And I will say this, one of the most important things that a young entrepreneur or anybody starting a business can do is try to get actual sales as soon as you can. If for those that have read the book, The Lean Startup, which was an incredible book that really changed a lot for us, they talk about the concept of an MVP, a minimally viable product. And I would say that you can take that to the extreme and you can create total crap, which I don't recommend, but we really leveraged the idea of a minimally viable product. The product was not, it was good. It wasn't great. It certainly wasn't what it is today, but it was good enough for the customers that we were selling to. And we were able to get verified feedback in the form of dollars, somebody paying us for the product, which really told us we were heading the right direction. And, you know, a lot of times companies get started, they talk to their friends and family. Everybody says, well, it's a great idea. I'm sure you'll make lots of money, but nobody really actually pays them for it. And so they get a lot of bogus feedback that comes back to haunt them. So we got good 
feedback, we decided to go ahead. And so the fall of 03 is really when it became real. We had to buy about $100,000 worth of equipment and learn how to manufacture uh, metal truck covers. <laughs> so hopefully, was that helpful? Yeah, no, this is great. This has been super helpful. This is good feedback. I love the idea of just making it clear what we do, how we do it, and then putting some customer bio information of who we've signed up. Speaking of signing up, why don't you sign up to become a Patreon member today? Go ahead, pause this episode right now, and go sign up. It'll be the best decision you've made since pressing play on this episode. Did you know that people who work with financial advisors end up with up to 15% more money to spend in retirement? No matter what stage of life you're in, thinking about your financial future doesn't have to keep you up at night. Thanks to smartasset.com the service that over a half a million people have trusted to help them find a financial advisor. There's a free and easy path to financial peace of mind. Smartasset.com has built a safe and convenient tool to find vetted financial advisors in your area. And as an entrepreneur, you know it always helps to get an outside opinion, especially on your financials. Here's how it works. Begin by taking Smart Asset's short quiz at smartasset.com inspiration. You know, I was quite surprised on what I learned after taking Smart Asset's short quiz, and you will too. See, within minutes, Smart Asset will match you with three pre-screened fiduciaries, each legally obligated to act in your best interests. They'll also send you a free personalized retirement planning guide with actionable advice so you can feel confident in your next steps. Take control of your financial future today with Smart Assets. To receive your free personalized retirement planning report, go to smartasset.com slash inspiration. Your report will provide personalized insights on your retirement readiness. So visit smartasset.com slash inspiration today. Thank you for the yeah the rundown. I had so many questions, but you slowly kept answering them. I do have some though that maybe I can do rapid fire in between. And for sure, I don't mind you being long winded because it, I've been told reading my recent reviews that apparently I talk over our guests too much, ah. which actually hurts my feelings. Whoever left that review. <laughs> And they don't like when I put my two cents in, but I'm doing it anyways. But I was going to say the MVP thing, that same thing I did with this podcast, actually. So maybe the first, let's just say even 50 episodes aren't nearly as quality as the ones coming out now, because obviously right now we have one of our best guests of all time that we're talking to, but also the editing and whatever. I'm like, hey, it's good enough that I'm like, do I want it to be a 10 out of 10? Of course, but I'm not going to spend five times the amount of time just to do that. And what I've been doing recently and some of my editors helping me, we've gone back we've re-edited and basically kind of like remastered them to make them even sound better and whatnot. So even anyone who's listening now, if you've listened to the first 50 or 100 episodes, the first 50 were already be done with almost, I think the 100 by the time this episode goes live, you know, because with the minimum viable product, I definitely agree with you. There's some people who just think, oh, I can put out crap and it's going to be okay. So if I put out a podcast that wasn't edited at all, I'm like, that's not good enough. You got to do something. You got to show that you care enough. But then some people will get to on the other side, they're like, they want it perfect. And then they don't even end up launching a podcast or, you know, whatever company, right? 100%. It is a balance and you got to kind of learn the balance, but it's the challenge. I see so many people that have ideas of something and it dies because they're trying to make it perfect. They're trying to dot every I, cross every T, and it just takes way too much time. And, and sometimes they do it, but they don't actually get any customer feedback until 
they're way down the road. And I think the one thing that you have to understand it with any product idea or any service idea or any business idea at all is that at least 50% of what you believe or what you think is wrong. And the problem is you don't know what that 50% is. You don't know what product or services or what features your customer really cares about. You might think that he cares about one thing, but he cares about something completely different. And you won't learn that unless you go out and actually try to sell the product and get customers using it and get fans who can help give you feedback. And so I agree. I think that with podcasts, with any sort of initiative, you've got to take the first step and get the ball moving. And once you're moving, then your creative juices start going, then you start to hear feedback and you can actually tweak, you know, even just the feedback that you just said, when you get feedback and it's difficult to hear, you know, it changes the way that you do your podcast as opposed to, let's suppose you you recorded a hundred of them before you released one. Well, you'd never really get that feedback and then you would continue to make mistakes. I think what most people end up doing is just doing nothing, you know, that they're like, uh, they keep trying to make it perfect. And then they're just like, uh, it's not good enough. And they forget and they just stop. I think that's the main thing that it seems like you just do something because once you get your steps going, then you're good to go. It doesn't mean all feedback is good, right? You know, sometimes maybe the person just wants to be a hater who wants to leave a review or, you know, they're just in a different mindset. So not to take it personally too, like I am right now. So here's some rapid fire questions, then I'll let you jump in. You said you bought a house, like coming out of college to, I guess y'all moved into or did your business out of. How did y'all have the money to buy that $50,000 house? Yeah. So this was 2003. Oh, so you anyone could. My cat. It was crazy times. I think we got this house, this $56,000 house. We got it for like... Uh, I don't know, 5% down, if that. And then I think we put the 5% on a credit card. <laughs> and y'all are coming out of college. That's what I was like wondering too, right? So I literally signed the papers saying he had a job making $14 an hour and they gave him the loan. It was a different time, man. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that would fly today. Yeah. And so y'all decided, I guess that you get out, you needed a different place and it was cheaper to do it that way than buying your own equipment and everything you're kind of like alluding to, right? You were just having some guys who were good at welding or whatever, make those first six. Yeah. So we had the product. So the process to manufacture our product, it involves several really heavy machines, but one in particular is called a press break. And it's a 30, 40,000 pound machine that comes and presses metal into a form. And those machines cost about $40,000. So we did not have that money. We did not want to buy that. And so we were outsourcing the product to a company that had a press break and uh, welding equipment and all this stuff. But like I said, the, because we couldn't because right now to make our products, we have about 2000 different what's called SKUs, but so 2000 different designs for the covers that are out there that we make. And every one of those had to be engineered completely using these machines. And that's just not something that a contract manufacturer has the time and ability to let you use his machines all day to figure out how you're going to make your products. So we had to basically bite the bullet in September of 03 and put together a loan which we did through a, a local bank to get, a, well, it was essentially a, an equipment lease. So we did an equipment lease to own on a bunch of uh, metal fabrication equipment. Well, you hit on my second rapid fire question was that basically I'm like, oh, maybe you got a HELOC on the house to do that. <laughs> you know, like I was wondering how you got the money to buy the equipment. And it sounded like too, what you were saying, 
is you'd be last in line if you were even on that machine when you did those first six, right? And I guess you weren't even the ones doing it, it would seem like, since you had no expertise in it. Like, if those guys had other bigger projects, which it seemed like almost every project is bigger at that point, even though this is big for y'all, for them, it's like the smallest, right? And I think any entrepreneur is going to deal with that. That's exactly right. We couldn't get the time on the machine, you know, especially when we were in August, he was uh, basically a job shop. And so his welding work would pick up in the summer. So he had all these giant customers paying him thousands and thousands of dollars. And here we were, you know, paying him a couple hundred dollars, but we needed priority on these machines. So there was just no way that was going to fly. So it was, this is where we needed some, our first round of investing was friends and family. That's very typical. And my father became a early investor in our company, which really helped us a lot with some of these initial loans, not the cash that he gave, but because his investment, he became a 20% owner of the company that required that he had to co-sign loans. And so since we didn't have any collateral, he actually did have collateral. So we were able to get some of these initial loans because of his collateral. So it was his house that was on the line. Well, how much money did he put in for 20% of the company? At that point, he put in 20 grand. <laughs> Valuation, if I'm good, I think it's 100. Yes, yeah, 100 grand. I'm good. See, I'm not even an engineer. <laughs> I just went to business school. Sorry. So you ask him for money. So is that how much money you got total? Because you said friends and family to get started off. Because again, that's one of those things that I love talking about, like how much money you actually needed. Yeah. So we raised initially in the first year, we raised uh, about $35,000 in cash. And so 20 was from my dad. We raised another 15 from friends and family. We used that money for, you know, initial startup costs. We used it for a, a little bit of salary. I think Matt took a $15,000 salary. I deferred my salary and lived on savings for that first summer. We were revenuing from basically day one. So we were actually bringing in income. So, you know, when we sold six products, we made $9,000. So we were able to start bringing in revenue. And then we leveraged the investment of my dad and his collateral to get about a $100,000 loan to buy all these equipment and machines and stuff toward the end of the year. So I'd say in the first year, we raised between friends and family and then this business loan, we raised about $130,000. And we ended the year. So in 2003, we sold $15,000 worth of products and had about $96,000 in expenses. So we lost 81,000. So, you know, that initial loss of 81,000 came from loans from friends and family. And I guess even with that, I mean, where did you put this press brake machine? Did you put it in the living room of the house that you bought or what? Yeah, good question. There are many things that just have, you know, Providence has, has worked out in such a way that we've just been incredibly blessed at times that we didn't know, you know, anything that we were doing. So when we bought this house, we bought it in Phillipsburg just because it was really cheap and it was the only house we could find. It happened to be about 200 yards from a huge manufacturing incubator. So it was, uh, and you find these, you know, a lot in various places all throughout the country, but certainly in any sort of economically depressed area, which is what Phillips is. And so a manufacturing incubator or any incubator is going to be an old building, an old warehouse. In, in this case, it was an old cigar factory that the town had basically, it was under the ownership of a local group of people, but it was connected to local government. And so they had incredibly cheap rent. So when we moved out of the garage, because we couldn't even put these machines in the garage, 
we ended up renting about 4,000 square feet of this manufacturer's incubator. And I think we paid $400 a month for it. So it was really cheap. And you said Phillipsburg's like a cheap place to live. I mean, did you grow up anywhere near here? I grew up about two hours away. I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Harrisburg is definitely much more affluent, not, not crazy. Pennsylvania is not an incredibly expensive place to live, but certainly Phillipsburg is on another level. I mean, to this day, the median household income in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania is 37000 And so, you know, property values and many other things. It's an old coal mining town. It's one of the places in the country that you hear about when you have elections of people trying to help those places thrive. And so Diamondback is certainly doing a good job, really bringing a lot of very high paying manufacturing jobs into the area now. And so when you're in Phillipsburg too, you said you went here because it's cheap. There's not, I think we all get it. It sounds like a small town, kind of sleepy town that there's not much to do. Did you actually live in that house that y'all ended up buying? Like the, either of y'all? I know you said he was married and about to have a kid as well. Correct. Yeah. So he moved into that house. He actually still lives in that house to this day. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was what, 17 years ago. It was about 900 square feet. And he and his wife and two kids still live in that same house, still 200 yards from the manufacturing place where we started. So yeah. So he lived there for a while. I ended up living, I was living in State College at the time. I was still finishing up the lease that I had. And then when that ended, I moved to a place with our first employee, who was one of my best friends from my whole life. His name was Matt Reed. And, and he and I got a place together out in the woods and somewhere close to there as well. So that it was a lot cheaper. It was like Brokeback Mountain style or what? No, 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 just, uh, <laughs> just, just hanging out, just doing life. <laughs> yeah, that was an off-topic question that I like to ask to that same reviewer, by the way. So I was going to say, was that near Phillipsburg? Yeah. That the place where you were at, the cabin? Yeah, we moved into a place in uh, what's called Port Matilda, Pennsylvania. So it was about 15 minutes from the shop and 15 minutes from State College. Yeah, it was great. We had about 50 acres of land and a four-bedroom house, and I think we paid 700 a month for it. Nice. And so just everyone at State College is where Penn State is located, right? So you're in between. So it's not too bad, because that's what I was going to wonder, like your personal life, if you're like 21, 22, at least you get to move in with your good friend. That sounds like fun, right? But I'm like, if you're just in this town and it doesn't sound like there's a lot going on, that seemed kind of boring if you're 21 or 22. But it sounds like you could go back to the college city and have fun if you wanted to. Yes, we could if we A, had money or B, had time and neither of which we had at this point. So I would say that, you know, I was 20 years old, just turned 21 when we started the company. My 20s and my childhood ended abruptly that same month. You know, we went for years, probably didn't, not taking vacation, working 80, 90 hour weeks, sleeping at the office, doing everything to make the business fly. So I wasn't really concerned about having a life. But yes, I was close enough to stay college. And that's where a lot of people go if they stay college is, is a much larger town than is Phillipsburg. But yeah. Sounds like yeah, you were all about business right when you got done and left school early for it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was sink or swim for us. We really didn't have. And I would say that one thing kind of led to another. We started the business. We got these loans. Next thing you know, we were making decisions. You know, my father's house is, is now mortgaged. I've got money from people that I care very deeply about. And I've got Matt and his family and everybody's counting on us to succeed. And so we really needed to make the product work. So it was all day, every day trying to get as many initial sales as we could possibly get. 
yeah, you talked about the first year, I guess, financially, obviously didn't do too well. But again, it's, I mean, especially when you're manufacturing something, it's going to take time. I mean, basically any business does, but like you're saying, I mean, just getting the money to buy the equipment and everything else to get started. So was there anything else we could learn from year one as you transition and tell us about the rest of the years? Again, it goes back to really this idea of the MVP of being able to get out there and start trying to sell something because we had all these ideas of how we were going to sell the product. And most of them, we had written up our business plan when we were in college. But then as soon as we got into the real world, we started asking other people, you know, learning about the industry. And our industry was really what's called a three-step distribution industry, still is in many ways, in that a business, a manufacturer would traditionally sell product to a warehouse distributor. That distributor would sell it again to a dealer, either a truck dealer or what was more common at the time would be a truck accessory dealer. So this would be a store with a name like Trick My Truck or something and it would just sell truck accessories. And then they would sell it to the end user. So when the end user would buy a product for $1,500, the dealer would get, say, $1,200. The distributor would get maybe $900. And I would get $700. <laughs> and I was making it for like $500. So we were getting very little money, even though the product was selling for a lot of money. So we didn't love that, but that's how the industry worked. But we tried to sell to dealers and we couldn't really get the dealers to sell the product. We could sell it for them, but they weren't moving the product. We had no name recognition. We had no product recognition. Nobody knew who we were. But because we were hustling and selling actual products to end users, we discovered this show and you know we did this show and we sold six units and it was amazing. So we created an idea then, okay, here's how we're going to survive. We're going to take this product Product to different shows. So we chose this show that'll take us into year two. We chose this show in the winter of 2004 that was called the Eastern Sports and Outdoor Show. It's in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I had grown up going to this show. This was like a hunting and fishing and all kinds of ATVs and off-road vehicles and all kinds of things. So one of the unique things about our product and really the reason it's patented is because it can haul a lot of load on top. And this is something that still to this day, we are one of the few people who can do this with the product itself. We do have some competitors now, but at the time there were really none in the sense that once you put a cover on your truck bed, you can seal and lock up what's in the bed, which is great, but you kind of lose your ability to use your truck to haul things because you now have this kind of cover on top. And so people who used their trucks a lot would say, I don't want to cover, even though I do want to seal and lock my bed, but I still want to be able to carry things. And so our cover was unique in that you could put 1600 pounds on top of the cover. So you could use the cover like a flatbed in addition to sealing and locking what was below the cover. And so this allowed us to start to get creative about what we were going to put on top. Um, we came up with this idea that we could haul ATVs. And I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they're smaller four-wheel off-road vehicles. And the idea that we could haul ATVs on top of the cover so that you didn't have to tow a trailer or if you needed to tow a boat or a camper or something else, you could do that. So we invented all of the accessories to do that. ATV ramps that could drive up on the cover and protection devices and guards for your window and all kinds of things. And we launched this product at this Eastern Outdoor and Sports Show because we thought, okay, shows was the one place that we were able to sell before. And so we did this show. This is after we'd borrowed all this money and it was a nine day show. And in those nine days, we sold $25,000 worth of stuff. 
I was super excited because it sort of proved the concept of both the new products that we developed, but it also to us proved the concept that if we went to shows, you know, and this is Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, but there are shows like this all over the country in Texas and Utah and California and all these different places that I presumed would be bigger than one in Pennsylvania and or certainly as big. And so we started putting together this idea, okay, if we can go to a show and sell $25,000 worth of stuff in a week and a half, we could do two shows a month, that'd be 50 grand minimum, plus we're getting our name out there, plus we're meeting new customers and new dealers. We can put together an income statement that gets us, you know, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars. So that's what we did when we started 2004, really into 2005. I think 2004, we went to a couple shows. We poked around. You know, we increased our sales from fifteen thousand dollars in 2003 to about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in 2004. And then we did an entire year of shows in 2005 and increased our sales to about 700,000. So we did about 300% growth that year. And it was okay, but what we found out, and this is another thing, and one of the things that I teach a lot, and I'd say probably from a financial standpoint, this is the most important thing that I would really, really say that anybody that's doing any sort of a product-based or even a service-based business where you're actually producing revenue. You know, so many businesses these days, especially app-based businesses or marketing-based businesses are really difficult to value or to create clear value because you're getting eyeballs or you're trying to get people to use it. And then you're selling marketing packages, which is probably what you do for this program. And you can still translate some things. You know, If you have a million listens, maybe that allows you to sell packages for X dollars. I don't know what, what they are, but for every financial assumptions that you make, for every income statement that you make, you have to make these assumptions so that you're assumptions are, okay, let's say you want to sell a million dollars in a year of your product. Well, people will write that number out, but they won't really think clearly about what does that actually mean? If you want to sell a million dollars of your product, what is the two assumptions that really make that up or what's called the value assumption and the growth or rate assumption? And it's the simplest math, but it's just how much is the average that you think people will value your service? And so for us, we would say that's $1,500. Okay. And then how many of those are you going to have to sell? So how many per month, how many per week, how many per day is going to get you that million dollars. You talk to some people, you know, they want to open a coffee shop and they think it's going to revenue $500,000 and they're going to have an average ticket price of $5. Well, you know, how many customers you're going to have to have thousands of customers to get that. And so those assumptions, the value assumption and the growth or rate assumption really make up the financials that you project. And so for us, we had made these assumptions that we were going to go to these shows and every show we were going to do, we were going to sell between fifteen dollars and $20,000 worth of stuff because that's what we'd done at the other show. We actually backed it off a little bit because you know we didn't know. And what we found was that by going to shows all over the country, we went to California. I drove a truck from Pennsylvania to nearly every state in the lower 58. Found that the largest truck cover or the largest sportsman show in the entire world is the show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania that we started with. And we didn't know that at the time. So we made assumptions that all these other shows would produce as much and they didn't. So we would drive to Utah and do a show and sell $3,000 or we'd drive to Texas and sell $4,000. 
And those weren't really covering even the expenses to get there. So we go through 2004 and 2005. We're trying to sell through these shows. That's our primary way. We are selling product, but it's the cost to do them is so high. So I think we sold in those two years, we sold almost a million dollars, $920,000, I think is what it was in those two years, but we spent like almost 1.2 million. So we lost another $258,000 in the two years from 2004 and 2005. And so at this point, as we've gotten from 2003 to 2005, we've lost about almost $300,000, I think was the total that we lost by this point. And so it's not going well, but we're still selling product, you know, so we're still pretty excited. Over four out of five HelloFresh customers say HelloFresh helps them lead a healthier lifestyle with delicious low-calorie, carb-smart, and vegetarian options available each week. Get better value. HelloFresh is 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store and 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal without sacrificing the quality. HelloFresh offers the flexibility you need with customizable orders every week. You can easily change your delivery days or food preferences and skip a week whenever you need. You know, when I got my HelloFresh package, it was the most exciting thing to happen to me in all of 2020 and 2021 combined. If you're like me, cooking can be a hassle and time consuming, but HelloFresh changes all that for the better. Go to HelloFresh.com millionaire12 and use code millionaire12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Again, go to hellofresh.com slash millionaire12 and use code millionaire12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I'm here with Jonathan Cogley. How are you doing, Jonathan? Hi, Austin. Doing great. Thanks. Cool. Uh, Jonathan actually interviewed him on episode 85, and he actually helped a lot of our business founders on Group Call 14. So if you're a Patreon member, you can check that out. So your company is Logic Boost Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So we're a startup accelerator. We're based in San Diego, and we work with startups that are early revenue or pre-revenue. So you've got a great business idea. Maybe you've validated the market. You've got one or two customers or maybe a few beta customers, and you're looking to grow your business. We're the accelerator that would help you. We have three startup partners already. One is in Israel, one is in Tennessee, and one is in LA. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months. So if people wanted to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Definitely visit our website. So logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. Sign up for a free mentoring session with me. We'll talk about your business and see if you're a good fit. Okay, so it's free to sign up. Yeah, we're looking for startups. It doesn't cost anything. We're looking to do a free mentoring session with them, learn a little bit more about their business and see if it's a good fit for our team. So our team would then bring angel investment so we can write checks up to say $300,000. And we also include services. So we might be able to provide a VP of sales to help get your startup going. It could be you know, customer success help. It could be technical help. We have a CTO on staff. And yeah, that's the approach. We basically accelerate your startup and give you a better chance of being successful. And our goal is to take startups from effectively $0 to 1 million ARR. And where do they need to go to one more time, Jonathan? Logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months.
it's not a good thing, obviously, but if you, it'd be way worse if you weren't selling anything, right? So that's what you're saying is like, if anyone has a business and they're not selling anything and losing money, there's an issue. But you're like, okay, at least we're selling stuff. We've just got to figure out how we can make it profitable at the end of the day. I'll do rapid fire questions and let you keep going if that's cool. Yeah. First off, I do know what an ATV is. I live in Jacksonville, Florida. They call that South Georgia, by the way. So oh, nice. <laughs> there's a lot of rednecks around here. So we're kind of where I grew up around. But if anyone doesn't know, it's kind of like a big golf cart. And actually, there's so many golf carts where I live that they kind of trick them out. Have you seen that now? They kind of put bigger tires on them to kind of make them look like a little ATV. So yeah, and some of them are some of the souped up golf carts. They've even got them in four wheel drive. But yeah. Oh, nice. Maybe you need some pictures of those on your website. But yeah, because it seems like a lot more people are kind of going that way versus the ATVs even like it looks way heavier. It's way more kind of more rugged and seems like it takes a little bit more space, right? Here's one of them. So was your business plan to go directly and cut out all those middlemen initially, like when you came out of school? Or did you kind of just figure that out after doing the first six of them, if you will? Yeah. So oddly enough, when we were in school, our business plan was that we were going to manufacture the product. We were going to sell it on Google, you know, have a website, sell it direct to consumer. And that's how we were going to do business. And we always maintained a portion of our business that way. But when we started selling in the industry and finding out that we needed, at least we thought we needed to sell to these distributors, we ended up abandoning that plan. We sold, I mean, we didn't abandon it totally. We still built a website. We still took sales direct, but not as an e-commerce. We took them over the phone. We sold at these shows, but we still did most of our business through dealers. We were still at this time trying to set up new dealers, work with new organizations so that we could find distributors and sell the distributors because that's what everybody else was doing. And that was one of the reasons why we were selling product, but losing money because we just couldn't get the margins to actually make enough money on the product to do all. The only way that a massive distribution system works for manufacturers is if you're selling huge volume. So it's low margin, but it's high volume. We were doing low volume and low margin. <laughs> that's what you don't want to do. Right. And that's not, that's a recipe for going out of business. So you definitely don't want to do that. And I was going to point out, as you said, you could drive an ATV on here. It's kind of, you have cool pictures on here so you can actually see it. But that's what makes one of your differences. Like you were saying, like the fiberglass one that I talked about earlier, if you went on there, almost all those are like painted the same color as the truck too. So even if it could carry the weight, it would scratch it all up or whatever, right? So again, if someone's wondering like, what are the differences? I'm slowly seeing it as you go. I mean, as you started off and as you said, and you didn't know, but I only realized this because I looked for it once upon a time when I did have a truck early on. It was just like even the truck bed storage, I can't even think of the lockbox or whatever. Like even when I looked at those, like you're saying, you might think it might fit universally on most trucks, but almost every truck is different. You know, the attachments on the side and the width of it or length of it that you actually want on the truck bed or so. Yeah, it's just interesting that even though from an outsider's point of view, maybe they're listening now, they really thought it'd all be the same, but there's all these little minor differences that made it much harder for your business to succeed, obviously, here in the early years. Yeah, 100%. It was so much we would make a cover and then we would go to install it. I mean, in the early years, we would sell a cover to a guy and we would hand deliver it to his house because we didn't know what it was going to be like to install it because we'd never used that truck before. So we would go to his house. I would usually be the one talking to the customer. Matt would be doing the install. There were times where he would have to cut things and basically fabricate things on the spot to get this cover to fit on the customer's truck. Yeah. You said free installation, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> you're that good of a company. You're just doing free installs, but really you're just making sure that it actually fits. 
Exactly right. We were doing white glove installations. You had a customer service problem. We would drive. I, Matt one time drove from Pennsylvania to New York City to take care of some of these lock because we needed to learn why it was uh, breaking the way it was and why it wasn't working. And so yeah, it was just so much trial and error over these times. So it's one of the reasons why we were losing so much money. I guess I'll point one other thing out for people. But at this point in 2005, we've been in business for about two and a half years. We've lost a little over 300,000. We've only brought in enough cash at this point. Oh, we did get another round of investment from a local sort of like an SBA program. And this was a called Ben Franklin was the organization, but it was sort of a state run program. And there are a lot of places you can get money from the state. Some of them are loans. This one was an equity position. So they actually took a potential for equity. They never actually took the equity. We actually converted it to a loan and just paid it off. But they invested about a hundred, I think it was about 150,000. And so we've been able to cover our initial losses through moving from friends to family. Then we moved to a small equipment lease. Then we moved to this sort of state-run, government-run money, which is very traditional way that businesses get money out the gate is by hitting all three of these types of places. And that's how we did it. They wanted to fund you even after you had like 300K of losses in the first three years? Yeah, because they could see the product itself. You know, we had increased our sales hundreds of percent. We were on the cusp. I mean, when we entered 2006, we had finally figured out a pretty good plan. We had distributors. They were already selling our products, so we didn't have to go pay the money to acquiring a customer, especially a big customer is usually extremely expensive. We dialed back our shows going into 06 so that we weren't bleeding so much money going to these and traveling to these shows. And so when we entered that year, which is when we got some of this money at the end of 05, we had a pretty good plan and we didn't think we needed any money, any more money after this, except when we started in January of 06, I'm looking at a chart here just to jog my memory, but we had, obviously our product is made out of aluminum. If I showed you a chart of aluminum prices from basically the day that we decided to do the company up until this point, it's just up, up, up every single year. And so this crazy year in January of 06, aluminum prices jumped 100% in a six-month time frame. So they went from basically, you know, what would have been like a dollar a pound to over $2 a pound in six months for just the raw ingot. And that's never happened before, never happened since, and it destroyed our 06. We got the money from this organization because they were convinced that we were doing really well. And we were until aluminum prices doubled. And we ended up basically going through 06. We lost another $100,000 in 06, having projected that we were going to make money. So we keep, we're like right on the cusp of being profitable. But every single time we get there, some crazy random event in the world would happen and it would beat us back down. 06 was the year that we pretty much, we would have gone out of business if not for two things that happened. One was we had a group out of Penn State called the Garber Fund. And this was the coolest thing. It was basically a guy named John Garber. I'm hopeful that he knows that his uh, investment in Penn State did some really good things for the world. But he gave $5 million. He was a very wealthy graduate of Penn State and gave $5 million to the MBA department at Penn State in order for them to do real world investment as a class. 
And so they had a class that was like a venture capitalist class and class would meet with businesses and the businesses would do pitches to the class and then the class would decide which ones they wanted to fund. And they contacted us. I didn't go after them. They contacted us early 2006 and asked if we would be want to do a pitch for the class. And I said, well, I don't think we're going to need any money, but I'll be happy to do a pitch and participate in the class if it helps. And so I went ahead and did this pitch. And by the time things started moving, it became apparent that with aluminum prices doing what they were, we were desperately going to need this money. We ended up winning this pitch and got about $300,000 of investment money, which they gave us in two different checks. The first check was $150,000 and the second check was another $150,000. And the first check came in June of 06. We had basically been losing money all year and had no money in the bank to lose that money. So we'd been extending our suppliers out 45 days, 90 days, 100 days. And for people who aren't familiar with business terms, net 30 is what the business terms typically is, okay, you're going to pay them in 30 days after they deliver the product. And so we were calling our suppliers saying, okay, I know we said we would pay you in 30 days. Can we pay you in 45 days? Can we pay you in 60 days? And just getting our suppliers to give us longer and longer terms, which they would do if you were upfront with them, but that runs out at some point. And we were just at the cusp where they were going to cut us off and not ship us any more metal, which would be game over. You know, the only reason we were staying alive was because our suppliers were still sending us the metal, even though we couldn't pay for it. When this check for $150,000 came, it was the biggest check I'd ever seen in my life. I got it in the mail. I put it in the bank. And within 24 hours, I spent it all. It was like blowing my mind. I mean, I literally just spent all of it on uh, past suppliers and people that I'd been making promises to that I was going to do it. So we ended up, we didn't get anything, but it did get us back to zero, allowed us to keep making product for another day. I was looking up. Yeah, you weren't joking around about because you wouldn't even think aluminum price would jump that much. So they're saying from this is an article even written last year. They're saying the volatility over the last 15 years have been insane with aluminum. And there's the saying 2004, it was 1,716 per ton. And then by 2007, it was 2,638. It's almost double the amount. Yep, exactly. Right. And those were our first three years. Right. And it's crazy that you went to the biggest conference or whatever you said to sell the eight or sell your beds at that very first one. Cause I would think down in the Southeast for sure. Like you, I'd have your exact same assumption. I'm like, dude, you'd be able to sell a shit ton of those down in the Southeast, but I don't know. Maybe could have been the prices might be too high for some people down here. Or I know you said that was the biggest one. Well, no, what it was, was, I mean, it was just a weird thing. Like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania is strategically located between Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, even pulls people from the Northeast. And so it's this weird area where you have all these sportsmen and hunters and truck guys, but you wouldn't know it. And so the guys from Texas would tell us, you got to come to this show in Texas. It's huge. It's bigger than this show. And we would believe them, but we would go down there and it would be a tenth the size of the show. It was a very big rude awakening to realize that none of our financials were going to make sense. So was the size of the show really that much smaller or just the people who actually purchased? No, it was definitely the size. It was the sportsman show in Harrisburg will pull a million people through in a nine day. And some of these other shows, we would go to them and they would pull 100,000 people through. And so really, it just was the numbers game of how many people you would see in a given show that you could be able to sell product to. Thank you for sharing all this so far, because I mean, this is just like anyone who wants to complain or whine about anything as far as like getting a business started, right? I mean, your financials are kind of insane how you're able to survive of what we're going through year four so far, right? 
Exactly. And the other thing I like to point out to people, just because I think people get into entrepreneurship because they think they're going to make a ton of money. There's a book, forget the name of the book right now, but it's a book that I read when I was writing a workbook on becoming an entrepreneur. But it basically takes 25 years for entrepreneurs, the average entrepreneur to reach economic parity with his college roommates if they just go get a job. And so for me, at the end of 2006, we get into 2007. 2007 was really a recovery year where we upped our prices to deal with the aluminum increase. We fixed a few things in our expenses and we actually had our first year of break even. I think we made $5,000 net or something. So we finally kind of were at a place where it looks like, okay, we're breaking even. My average pay up through these first four years, so 2004, five, six, seven, so four and a half years, my average pay was about $10 an hour. And a lot of that pay I'd actually deferred because the company didn't have the money to pay me. So I just left it in there. And we lived on nothing. I mean, $7 a day was my food budget, including all out to eat and everything else. That was also my entertainment budget. I had nothing in the bank for anything other than eating, sleeping, and going to work. Jeez, man. Yeah, this is crazy. So what was motivating you through, I'll just go through 2006, because I guess 2007 finally broke even, but what, basically your first five years in business, just losing money. And because I alluded to, I'm like, maybe you went back to school sometimes to have fun or whatever, but it sounds like you're just working your ass off and you're like, I don't even have time for that, but you're working this hard and you're not making money. Yeah. I mean, what motivated me in this time frame was the fact that I desperately needed to get this money back for my investors. And I couldn't have my dad lose his house. I couldn't have Matt and them, my business partner. I was incredibly confident, a very confident young 21-year-old. I believed we could do it. I believed we could make this business succeed. I thought the financials were there. I thought the product was good. And it was. We just kept hitting these crazy things. You know, if aluminum doesn't go up 101% in those first four years, and it went up almost all of that, it kind of took a dip and it did almost all of that just in 06. If that doesn't happen, we all of a sudden are making money and everything's good. You know, then we get to another year if if the shows had turned out differently and I, we hadn't made that mistake, we're making money in 04 and 05 because we're not spending as much money. So it was like we were learning something every year and it seemed like we could make it, but just some crazy mess would happen every single year. And so I was just really in it at this point, motivated to survive. It was just gut level survival because to stop would have meant that all of our employees would lose their jobs. We had about 20 employees at this point. It would mean that Matt and myself would be in massive debt. My father would be in, in a mess. We couldn't lose. So we had no choice but to succeed. Did you have any doubt? I mean, at this point, I started to have some concerns. <laughs> good, good. It only took five years, right? Well, okay. So let me get in because this is a really pivotal part of the story. I mean, and one second, if you don't mind, before we jump into that, would you be open to doing this as two parts, this interview? Yeah, because I think it is going to go long. Yeah, for sure. So basically gone over the first five years, and then we'll talk about, you know, the transition of you finally becoming profitable because we got 13 more years of your story. So, right. I mean, and it, it sounds like we got a lot of details. I mean, it seems like hopefully we've gotten through the rugged stuff, if you will, but hopefully it seems like things are going in the right directions. But again, it's just how much work you have to put in just to get somewhere. Right. And so I guess kind of closing this part one, did you have an email or anything that someone could reach out to you if they want to say thank you for the interview? And then on the second part, we'll again, talk about about the last 13 years of what you've done here at Diamondback. 
Yeah, for sure. If anybody wants to reach out, you can do so at Ethan, E-T-H-A-N, at diamondbackcovers.com. That's my business email. And it sounds like, yeah, we'll have plenty of info in the part two. And as we get into the second part, believe me, the pain is not over. <laughs> really, the pain is really just beginning. Oh, no. Hey, guys, Energetic Austin here. I hope you enjoyed that interview. The second part of the interview is actually available right now for all our Patreon members. Here's a preview of it. And I got a call one day from a guy who said he was from the Sheet Metal Workers Union, and he wanted to talk to me about unionizing our company. And I said, fuck didn't. no. <laughs> yeah, well, that, of course, that would be that would be the first you know Thought. answer. But he said, hey, like, can we meet? Can we talk? And he said, you know, I'm going to be up in your area next Friday or this Friday. I said, oh, OK, yeah, sure. Let's meet. So I hang up the phone and then two minutes later, my phone rings and this guy says, hey, I'm from the Labor Relations Institute and I am here to talk to you about the filing with the National Labor Relations Board to unionize Diamondback. He said, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get a call from the union and they're going to ask for a meeting with them this week. And I said, that already happened. I just signed up for that meeting on Friday. He said, okay, cancel that meeting. Well, how many employees did you have at that place? At this point in the production plant, we only had 20 employees. Oh my gosh. I mean, it was so tiny. I was like, why are you messing with us? It was just insane. And so we go through this 40 days where I have to somehow beg my employees not to vote to shut down the business that I've only lost money and just now started making money. So become a Patreon member to get part two right now. And by the way, if you're one of those listeners that have checked out, I don't know, like every episode on our feed, well, would you mind emailing me and let me know why you're not a Patreon member? Just email me at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. Again, just email me at austin at millionaire-interviews.com.